This is the final instalment of a three-part Explaining Brazil series on the 1970 Football World Cup in Mexico. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, scroll back a few days in our podcast feed and listen to them first. Mexico 1970 was a World Cup of firsts. The first to be held outside Europe or South America. The first time the tournament was broadcast live in colour. But it was also a last look at the Jules Rimet trophy, because by lifting it for the third time, Brazil would keep it forever. It was arguably the greatest World Cup, won by perhaps the greatest team. We left off our tale of the 1970 World Cup with Brazil beating England, the reigning world champions. It was a stunning game of football and it also represented a passing of the baton. Brazil were the new kings in waiting. But they still had plenty to do before their coronation. In the knockout stage, they had to get past Peru and Uruguay before facing Italy in the grand finale in Mexico City. But however fabled that game may be, largely thanks to Brazil's historic fourth goal and the post-match celebrations, it's not exactly a classic match. The first half is tight, but the second 45 minutes provide no contest whatsoever. Italy are dead on their feet, and Brazil looked like Barcelona playing against an over-50s pub team. In this final episode of our series, we look back at the legend of that final, and then we try and frame the legacy of the 1970 World Cup, both in Brazil and abroad. I'm Ewan Marshall, editor of the Brazilian Report, and this is how Brazil became the land of football. After winning their group, Brazil also won the right to play their knockout matches in the city of Guadalajara, where they had been based since the start of the tournament. While this may sound like a trivial point, it was actually a huge advantage, because one of the defining aspects of the 1970 World Cup is that it's played in many Mexican cities which are located at high altitude. Of the five host stadiums, three are positioned over 2,000 metres above sea level. Now, if you're not acclimatised to these conditions, any sport or physical activity at altitude is extremely difficult. There's less oxygen in the air, meaning that athletes tire much faster, and even the trajectory of the football is altered. It moves faster through the thinner air. It's really difficult for goalkeepers. In a short tournament setting, with matches coming thick and fast, the 1970 World Cup must have been a nightmare for some of the players. Now, Brazil were the only side to prepare for this, as their rigorous physical preparation schedule saw them do weeks of altitude training to accustom their players to the conditions. But when it came down to it, the national team played almost all of their World Cup matches in Guadalajara, which is 1,500 metres above sea level, where altitude isn't much of a factor, if any at all. Andrew Downey, foreign correspondent and author of an oral history of the 1970 World Cup entitled The Greatest Show on Earth, available to pre-order now, he explains Brazil's advantage. Brazil uh, were a wee bit fortunate in the sense that they played, in the semi-final they played Uruguay, who had played 120 minutes extra time against the Soviet Union just just three days before, I think, three or four days before. Uh, And then in... The final, they played Italy, who had played 120 minutes extra time against West Germany in the semi-final just a few days before. So all the teams that played 
extra time or won in extra time in the World Cup, lost their next game. And they all said the reason they lost their next game, and this could be a convenient excuse, but there's definitely some truth in it, I think. They all said, listen, playing 90 minutes at altitude is hard enough. Playing 120 minutes is absolutely, you know, killing. And that had a, a major effect on our next game. Uh, we were just unable to, 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 to cope with Brazil once they had that extra gear in them towards the, you know, towards the end of the, of the second half. So, as a result of the fixture scheduling, Brazil went into the final fresh as daisies, while Italy were on their last legs. But the 1970 World Cup final wasn't all about fitness. Actually, it's a strategical battle as much as anything else. And much of that has to do with Brazil's coach, Mario Zagallo, who was parachuted into the job at the last minute to replace the rebellious Ron Saldanha. Saldanha's team was, was great for qualifying against weak opponents, but I don't think it would have won the World Cup. This is the voice of Tim Vickery, our other guest for this special series on the 1970 World Cup. Tim's a sports journalist and South American football expert, sharing his razor-sharp analysis on the BBC airwaves and Brazilian television. So, Zagallo comes in and makes some big changes. Pelé is back in the team, and he plays an attack alongside Tostão, despite the press saying the two could never work in the same side. Zagallo also sacrifices a left winger to play Corinthians playmaker Roberto Rivellino, giving Brazil more control over the midfield. One thing I think is really important to stress, and, and it's also something that, that, that people like Tostão really like to stress, is that it's everyone likes to see the Brazil 1970 team as this free-flowing side who basically just had the instruction to go out there and play Brazilian football and, you know, you'll win and you'll play attractive and, you know, la, 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 la. You know, this whole fantasy of how Brazilians play football. And Tostão said, listen, there was an awful lot more to it than that. First of all, there was the, the, the physical aspect that, that we spoke about and that was hugely important. But secondly, he said there was the whole tactical thing. He said... Zagallo was was years ahead of his time. Uh, all too often, he said back in, in 1970, it, it, the tactics he said, especially in Brazil, he said tactics all too often in Brazil had kind of been overlooked as something that just for nerds, it was kind of it was nerdy to to, to think too much about tactics because it took the uh, the actual the actual play, the, the the actual game, the actual creativity, and he said that. Zagallo changed that. Zagallo, Zagallo would do dossiers on the teams beforehand. He would tell us, you know, what was going to happen, and it would actually happen. He said, and that really gave us a huge amount of confidence because we knew he knew what he was talking about. And it's really worth re-watching these matches to see exactly what Andrew is talking about. Because though most of the football from that period seems, you know, sluggish and antiquated when viewed through a 21st century's perspective, Brazil in 1970 are an incredibly modern side. They attack and defend as a single unit, they close down the opposition in packs, and they're excellent on the counter-attack. And these are all aspects that Brazilian domestic teams struggled to develop even until five or six years ago. Simply to say that they were ahead of their time is putting it lightly, because that Brazil team skipped generations. Andrew also mentions an important point, which is the myth around Brazilian football. 
This idea that the national team plays a devil-may-care, free-flowing, attacking football, moving to the beat of a samba drum. But this has never been true. Actually, historically, Brazil have always been one of the most defensive-minded nations at the World Cup. And a similar thing can be said about Italy, because at this time in history, the Italians were seen as the masters of catenaccio, a super defensive style of football that preferred a 0-0 draw to a 5-4 win. However true this may have been at some point, this certainly wasn't the case for Italy in 1970. Yeah, well, they could play as well. I mean, look at the, the, the previous two games, they scored eight goals. You know, they hardly scored a goal in the group phase, but, you know, four against Mexico and another four against Germany. I know it went to, it went, it went to extra time. So they had some players, you know, they had some terrific players. Uh, Matsola and Rivera, they could never work out which one they were going to play. Matsola started, Rivera usually came off the bench. Brazil, firstly, they've had an easier route to the final. And secondly, their physical preparation is, 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 is magnificent. I suppose you'd, I'd look, you'd look at it with today's eyes and you think, blimey, Italy's ultra defending is just stupid. They make a point of making the pitch as big as possible for themselves, you know, because they, they defend so deep. So every time they come forward, they've got to go forward all that way. So they're obviously not going to last. They're not not going to last the ninety anyway, you know. Um, but that that's I suppose is is seeing the game through 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 contemporary eyes. Um, so as as a contest, you know, it, it really isn't a contest because uh, after half time, it, it's it's very easy for Brazil. I don't think Italy really threaten after half time. But in the first while while it's a game, it's interesting. The indelible image of the 1970 World Cup final is Brazil's fourth goal, at the end of a wonderful team move and with a stonking strike by captain Carlos Alberto. Erzino, faced by Facchetti. Oh, that's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! Carlos Alberto puts this game surely well beyond the reach of almost any side now. 4-1 with three and a half minutes of the game left. Carlos Alberto scores his first goal of the competition. That is the whole of the 1970... However, far from being this incredible virtuoso goal with Brazil's attacking players stroking the ball around instinctively, the goal was actually a move that came straight from Mario Zagallo's training pitch. He knew what he was talking about. And the perfect example for that is in that fourth goal of the game against... Uh, Italy. Uh, they had always said that you know Italy were mad marking, and, and and if they and if it was Facchetti, I think it was the left back that said if if we if we take the wing if the winger drags Facchetti out, out of position, that leaves that whole right flank open for Carlos Alberto to go down, and that's exactly what it did at that fourth goal, and it was a goal that everyone imagines just comes from you know this br- brilliant Brazilian play, you know free flowing football. But really, it was something that Brazil had worked on and seen beforehand on the on the training field, and they actually put it into play in real life. So I think that whole aspect of tactics and, and fitness is, is overlooked a little bit with the with the 1970 team. So, Brazil had won their third World Cup title, giving them more trophies than any other nation in history. But why was this tournament and this Brazil team so special? That's after the break.
Hi, my name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. As you know, we are an independent news outlet that lives off subscriptions. So you can support our independence by choosing one of our plans for the best content about Brazil in English. If you're already subscribed, then you can also buy us a coffee with a small donation starting at $4 and going all the way up to whatever your budget and your heart allows, you can help us refill our coffee mugs to continue our 24-7 coverage of COVID-19 in Brazil. You just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. Cheers! Here in Brazil, the legacy of the 1970 World Cup is a complicated one. As we mentioned in previous episodes, it happened during the most brutal period of the country's military dictatorship and the triumph served to sports wash the desperate situation in Brazil. The international media didn't want to hear about the military regime, torture, censorship or assassination. They wanted Pelé, Tostão, Jairzinho. They wanted to see those yellow and green jerseys and the Jules Rimet trophy. And within Brazil, the success drew attention away from the atrocities of the regime. Whether the public were opposed to the dictatorship or not, they took to the streets, they wore the shirts and they waved their flags. In an interview many years ago, renowned Brazilian football journalist Joca Kufuri once told me that while he was in university in 1970, his classmates talked about boycotting the World Cup out of protest to the ruling dictatorship. However, the call of the Seleção was stronger and Joka cut class to watch Brazil's opener against Czechoslovakia. And by the end of the tournament, all of his classmates had done the same. However, as Andrew points out, the military dictatorship's interest in the World Cup followed a similar pattern increasing its involvement as Brazil got closer and closer to the trophy. I think that the dictatorship used the 1970 team only after they won. I don't think the dictatorship, from all my research, showed the, the, the dictators using the team very much beforehand because what a lot of people don't remember about the 1970 team is that they left Brazil under a cloud. Brazil had this fantastic run through the qualifiers. You know, they won all their all their, their matches. They won all six of their games. It was the first thing they'd ever done. That they scored 23 goals and they conceded only two. So Daniel won his first 13 games in charge. Right. The problem was that after that, after those 13 games, which is over that period of the Brazilian summer 69-1970, things started to go wrong. Uh, they played a Minas Gerais select. They didn't do very well. And then there was a long period uh, between that game, which was in September 1969, until the next game, which was, I think, in February, March of 1970. And over that period, a lot of things happened. There was a lot of controversy. The team, Saldana came in again, and he changed all the team in 1970. And when he changed the team, the team wasn't playing very well. And so when Brazil left for the World Cup, they were under a cloud. A lot of people didn't think they were going to do well. Rivellino famously said, you know, there was nobody at the airport and everyone thought that we wouldn't even get out the, out the group stage. So I don't think the military were banking on the, on the team doing too well and using the team at that point. 
I think that only came after they won. And then there was this massive outpouring of joy when Brazil won. With the passage of time, the triumph in 1970 has sometimes been labelled the dictatorship's trophy, which is a claim that, as we've explained throughout these three episodes, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Also, there has been much made of the players' involvement in helping the military sports wash their own atrocities. Now, while there were certainly moments of collaboration, for example, the team was received by the military upon their return to Brazil, and midfielder Roberto Rivellino famously received phone calls from President Medici after every match, in the research for his upcoming book, Andrew Downey explored these theories. Whether they really knew, you ask all the players what they knew about the dictatorship and, and what they knew what was going on, and you get very different stories from a lot of them. None of them are really going to come out and say, and none of them have come out and said, yeah, we knew all the killing that was going on and the torture that was going on. Some of them will say, yes, we knew that things were were, were serious. But they all say, this is where they're all consistent, they all say, listen, we might have known things were bad, or we never knew things were bad, or we knew where things were, were, were whatever. But they all say, listen, we were football players, and we had one job to do, and... That's what we were going to do, and we were focused on that. We, we, there wasn't really much we could do. We couldn't really speak out, so we just decided we're going to get our heads down, we're going to play as well as we can, and we're going to try and win the World Cup. And that's really what they all did. Meanwhile, around the world, Mexico 1970 didn't have any of this bad press. In fact, its image over the years is almost completely unblemished, often going down as the greatest football tournament in history. I asked Tim Vickery exactly why the 1970 World Cup is held in such high regard. The, the, the thing that really makes that one stand out is that it was the first one that most of the world saw live on TV. And the images, you know, they're just unbelievably exotic. Unbelievably exotic. And you've got to tie it in with the, the moon landing a few, a few, uh, few months earlier. Um, it, just, it looks like something from, another, from a glorious other, other planet. Uh, and in comparison with the two World Cups in the 60s, it's it's pretty much controversy free, isn't it? There isn't um, there isn't a kind of Ratine or a Battle of Santiago or something like that to uh, you know one of the incidents to to to, to really get get the um, get the hackles rising. It, it's lots of terrific football. I'm too young to remember it. I, I never saw the 70 World Cup, but. Even even though I never saw it, I still have this image of it as being iconic. And when I've done the research, I, I kind of I understand a lot a lot more why I think it's so iconic because it was this World Cup that took place right on the cusp of of a big change in football. It was it was this World Cup of first of all it was the World Cup of firsts in that it was you know the first to be you know, the first to have its own ball. Uh, especially design ball. It was the first to have yellow and red cards. It was the first to have substitutes. Uh, and of course, it was the first to be broadcast live and in colour around the world. But it was also, in many ways, the World Cup of lasts. It was the last World Cup before money really started to t- have an effect in football. I mean, you don't see, you, you didn't see very many players in 1970, you know, with their own boots. You didn't see players with, uh, or the teams didn't have, you know, shirts with, you know, Adidas three stripes on it or anything like that. There was no, FIFA still had no big commercial sponsorships or it, it was a lot more kind of, I don't want to say seat of the pants organization, but it was a lot, 
it was not nearly as professional as it is now. And I think one of the reasons we, we remember that World Cup is because it was all about the football. And, of course, you had the greatest team of all time with the greatest player of all time at his absolute pomp. And I think all those factors together just make it this real moment in time that is absolutely unforgettable. Now, I was born 20 years after the 1970 World Cup, but looking back at those images, it truly is a stunning, almost cinematic experience. There's something about the way the Mexican sun and the early colour TV cameras come together to produce this remarkable-looking spectacle. I mean, Brazil have had many games broadcast on colour TV since, but I don't think the famous yellow and green shirt has ever looked as stunning as it did in Mexico. You know, when you get, you're beginning to get into autumn and winter and you go into a game on a pitch which is just an absolute mud heap and the rain's coming down, and you close your eyes and thinking, wasn't it good when we could watch that in the, in the, in the gorgeous Mexican sunshine? You know, it's that beautiful, exotic thing. You know, I remember most people at that time hadn't been abroad. So uh, you're bringing to them not only sporting excellence, but you're bringing to them a, a, a view of, of an exotic other life that they've only ever dreamed about. And on that note, we say goodbye to the 1970 World Cup and this special three-part series on Brazil's greatest ever triumph. I'd like to thank Tim and Andrew and all of you listening. This was a special edition of the Explaining Brazil podcast, the weekly show brought to you by the reporting staff of the Brazilian Report, the leading English language source of Brazilian news and analysis. If you like this podcast, please rate Explaining Brazil with five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind the show. We also offer a seven-day free trial, which gives you full access to the site for a week, without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Ewan Marshall, and this was the Explaining Brazil podcast. Until next time, take care, and salve a seleção.